Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide. Good morning and welcome to a sunny day in Adelaide. Good morning, John Lamb. Good morning, Deb. Yes, there's that funny word in the Bureau's forecast today, sunny. And that's all it says and it's all it needs to say. Thank you and bring it on. <laughs> Great weather for getting into the garden today and we'll certainly be answering your general talk about gardening questions a little bit later, but we'll be speaking first up about a bug that we talk about a lot, but its fortunes have waxed and waned, haven't they, John? Elmleaf beetle. Three years ago, the beetles were sitting out on the elm tree leaves and along came a heat wave and decimated the population. And for the next couple of years, elmleaf beetle hasn't been much of a problem. But that's three years ago. And it would appear that the beetles are back we're going to talk to uh, consulting arborist Michael Palamountan very shortly about uh, just what's happening with elm leaf beetle and if you've got an elm tree, what perhaps you can do to reduce the damage because they can be very devastating on elm trees if you're not looking after the tree itself. If you have a question about elm leaf beetle, uh, Michael Palamountan will be with us in the next few minutes. So please get in early and call on 1300 222891 and we'll be getting to your general talk about gardening calls a little bit later in the program. And the call is out to you. Um, John, you've been in correspondence with the Bureau of Meteorology about the fact that they have from the beginning of September decided to no longer publish soil temperatures. Yeah. Yes, for 20 years or more, I've been giving you the soil temperatures at uh, 10 centimetres below the surface and 20 uh, centimetres below the surface, and that's where the roots of your tomatoes or your plants are. And keep in mind that uh, the curator of the Bureau of Meteorology of uh, of, uh, Adelaide Botanic Garden says, uh, John, there are minimum temperatures for plants and there are optimum temperatures temperatures for plants and there are maximum temperatures and that's the reason why I've been talking so much about soil temperatures. But do you care? Does it matter the fact that the Bureau of Meteorology have decided that in Adelaide they will no longer publish soil data? Could be that they're recording it, but it's not being published. Mm. We'd love to hear from you on the text line 0467922891. They did say to John in a letter that the Bureau regularly reviews its data collection strategies to ensure its investment is targeted to those observations that achieve the greatest value and impact for our customers. As part of these reviews, the Bureau will now focus its soil temperature monitoring on agricultural areas. Well, just before we speak to Michael, there are so many texts coming through. I'd love to address them. This says, yes, we still need the bomb to provide us with that information. Cost cutting again, question mark. Matt in Seaton says, I think the bomb aren't in touch with the listeners. I'd like to see them keep the present Adelaide soil temperature as well as the evening local weather broadcast they've dropped from Peter's show. Thank you, Matt. Uh, This texter says, if it helps John and builds the community's expertise, of course we want the temperature. This person says, I think our Bureau of Meteorology is obliged to provide a comprehensive service which includes soil temperatures. Coralie says, I value hearing soil temperature on the gardening program. Uh, And this person says, I'd love the Bureau to give soil temps. And yes, please, to soil temps for home gardeners. Now, that's just about a third of the ones that we've had so far. So... um, Keep them coming. The text line is 0467922891. We'll come back to that issue a little bit later in the program. Yes, that's very valuable information. And uh, as you say, well, uh, some other comments I think probably would be relevant later on. But let's now talk elm leaf beetle. And we're going to talk elm leaf beetles with uh, consultant arborist Michael Palamountan. Michael's a regular guest on Talkback Gardening. And it's time to say good morning to you, Michael. Good morning, John. Good morning, Deb. So the beetles, they were devastated. The populations were devastated after heat waves some three years ago. Presumably, they're starting to recover. What's the situation this season? Well, you're right, John. So uh, you might recall it was December 2019 that we did have a heat, heat wave in Adelaide four consecutive days above 42 degrees. So 
that uh, caused uh, significant damage to the elmleaf beetle population, where a large proportion was uh, wiped out. So the following season, in spring and summer of 2020 and 2021, we had a very low level of elmleaf beetle activity and most trees had very low levels of damage. So the following season, last season, uh, spring and summer of 2021 and 2022, we noticed a gradual increase in elmleaf beetle activity and it increased in some areas more than others. And by the end of that last growing season, we saw uh, a few spike areas where some trees had quite substantial damage. So we realised that the numbers were picking up. So this season... 2022-2023, we do expect that this increase will continue. Those that have got elm trees would certainly be aware of the damage that they do. Uh, but for others, could you just describe an elm leaf beetle and just very, very briefly run through its life cycle because it's not just the beetle that, that causes the damage? Well, that's right, John. So uh, the beetle's life cycle, as it comes out of its overwintering period, it is a beetle with wings that flies up from the ground and lands on the trees and chews holes through the leaves called shot hole damage. And of course, they then find a mate and lay some eggs on the leaves and those eggs hatch and we get little larvae or caterpillars that then feed on the leaf tissues and cause a skeletonization type pattern of leaf damage. And those uh, um, life cycles can be repeated two or three times per year. So the damage accumulates uh, over the growing season. And certainly trees that have been devastated by elm leaf tree uh, beetles and uh, their little juveniles certainly look pretty sad at the end of the season. Just very briefly, the beetle itself, a quick description. Uh, it's a, a beetle that is sort of oval in shape, so uh, longish and narrow. So it's probably about five to six millimetres long, olive in colour with a, a more pale yellow stripe. OK, so there it is. The beetles are there. They're building up in numbers. And uh, round about now, they'll start to fly into the canopy of your elm trees. What to do? Arborists treat the elm leaf beetle with an injection. Could you explain what that involves, Michael? Yes, that's right, John. So uh, there are in, uh, insecticides avail uh, available, systemic insecticides, and the active ingredient is imidacloprid, which is a similar ingredient in uh, confidor-type products. Uh, that can be applied to the tree in a number of ways, for example, spraying or soil drenching or trunk injection. But why do you prefer the injection and prefer not to use it as a soil drench? Well, um, spraying of a large tree is quite difficult um, and we uh, end up with chemicals drifting through the landscape. So we choose not to do that to large trees. Soil drenching um, causes uh, other uh, insects in the soil ecology to be uh, affected by the chemicals. So where possible, we discourage people from using soil drenching methods. But in some circumstances, it is uh, a necessary approach in, in very selected circumstances. So we prefer trunk injection. It's more targeted uh, and there's less off-target damage to other potentially beneficial insects in the ecosystem. Michael, whenever I or any of my guests mention the word imidacloprid, uh, we team to ag uh, aggravate a number of people and they say we shouldn't be mentioning that chemical, it affects the bees. Could you explain why the use of imidacloprid on elm trees at least is going to cause minimum effect to the bees? Well, look, uh, imidacloprid is non-selective, so uh, it, it is correct in understanding that it can kill all sorts of insects. Um, when it comes to elm trees, they are a wind-pollinated tree, so typically uh, bee activity in an elm tree is extremely low. They can visit the tree, but they don't uh, uh, aggregate in elm trees in large numbers. So the risk to the bee populations is generally quite low. 
We have our very special guest, consulting arborist Michael Palmountain, with us. If you have an elm leaf beetle question, now is the time to call. The phone number is 1300 222 891. Michael, if you do have your tree treated with imidacloprid, uh, how long will it last? And could you give us just a, a broad brush idea of the cost of that application? Yeah, sure, John. So um, the chemical that is injected into the tree is taken up uh, through the vascular system and distributed to all the various leaf tissues throughout the tree, and they can remain present and active for two to three seasons. So we typically encourage people to stretch out the treatment regime to every three years where possible, or if they've got more concerns about the condition of their tree, they could do it every two years. Is it right to say that if your tree is in good heart, you're looking after it maybe organically, you're mulching, uh, using organic products, uh, watering it uh, when required, uh, that that tree is likely to have more tolerance or even resistance to elm leaf beetle? Yes, that's right. Uh, elm, tree, uh, sorry, elm leaf beetle will attack any tree, uh, whether it's healthy or unhealthy, whether it's been treated or not treated. So the use of the uh, insecticide does help. But it is important to understand that the trees in good health have built up energy reserves that they can draw on to make, uh, remain sustainable in the longer term. So certainly other steps to improve tree health and sustainability will go a long way in minimising the long-term impacts of elm leaf beetle damage. If you'd like to speak to Michael, we've only got him for a few minutes, one three hundred triple two eight nine one. Michael Margin-Marden asks on the text line, at what point in the cycle do the beetles descend to the ground? Uh, that's a good question, Marg. So once the beetles have uh, awoken up and uh, from their overwintering and land on the leaves, they feed on the leaves and mate. They will then lay some eggs and those eggs will hatch on the leaves and the little caterpillars will uh, start doing the skeletonisation damage. There are three instar stages, so three different sizes of caterpillars will feed and enlarge and then mid-spring to late spring they will migrate along the branches and down the trunk to the ground where they pupate and uh, convert back into an adult beetle and fly back up into the tree. That process so, yes, is... That will, I was going to say, the, the, the caterpillars coming down the tree can be quite fascinating. You see hundreds of them literally just crawling down the tree. Some of them actually fall out of a tree and, uh, they, and they go on with their, their life cycle. Um, and I had uh, a wonderful photo last year of somebody using their vacuum cleaner and sucking up the, uh, uh, the, the little caterpillars as they went down the tree. So... Is it of any value to try and control the caterpillars as they're coming down the tree rather than perhaps uh, trying to prevent uh, the beetles from getting started? Well, look, that's uh, any uh, physical control method, trunk banding to trap them, vacuuming them up. All of these help reduce the numbers of the beetles um, uh, living on and around your tree. So that certainly does help. Uh, but as you said, some of them aren't great climbers and can fall to the ground and bypass the traps. So while you might minimise them, you don't eradicate them using those strategies. Diane from Westbourne Park has called in. Good morning, Diane. Oh, good morning. How are you? We're very well on this sunny day. Well, we've got um, elm leaf trees in our back garden, as do our neighbours. We used to have somebody come and do our trees, but they no longer do it because of the cost of using the poison. We can't find anybody to come and treat our trees. Who do we ring and how do we contact our, an arborist that's legit to come and do our trees? We, we can't find anybody that's going to do it. Sure, Diane. Well, uh, Google will be your good friend um, and or word of mouth. There are plenty of us consulting arborists or practising arborists out there. Uh, and so it's a matter of calling a number of companies out there and ask them if they do provide this service and they would usually have some trained people who can use the equipment and the chemical appropriately. Um, so by all means, Diane, uh, get onto Google and look around and see if you can find someone to help you. But if you go on Google, a lot of those aren't qualified. They say they are. How do I know if I'm going to get a legit one that's going to know what they're doing? Not 
Yep, sorry, not some fly-by-nighter. That's right, not <laughs> yeah. a fly-by-nighter that just buys poisons and can kill my tree. This. Yeah. Oh, yeah. how do I know I'm going to get somebody that's qualified? Is there a qualifications like Master Builders got MBAs? Is something I look for? Mm, that's a good question, Diane. We do have qualified arborists who have a certificate three uh, in arboriculture or a diploma in arboriculture would be even better. Um, but we don't have a licensing system in our industry like a Master Builders Association, I'm afraid. Michael, can I come in there? Perhaps if uh, uh, Diane would like to ring her local council. Most councils have uh, an arborist or they have access to an arborist uh, to look after the trees in their area. And if you you ask them the names of uh, practising uh, arborists which are fully qualified I'm sure that they would be able to help you. But it's an interesting point Diane raises, you know, it'd be nice to be able to say what's your licence number, you know, so we know that you're, you're a certified uh, arborist. Diane I uh, hope you have good luck with that, please let us know how it goes. David from Cainton good morning to you. Good morning Debs, morning Michael and John um, I, I've been uh, <laughs> rather obsessed with uh, um, a huge area of um, elm leaves, uh, elm trees, um, originating from some uh, old trees on the uh, Lindsay Park stud and spreading out into the road uh, area for about 200 metres, um, just out of Angerston. And all the suckers are dying in great swathes and collapsing. And I know they have had the elm leaf beetle in the past, and I'm just wondering if the beetle is enough to actually cause a huge uh, death toll amongst the uh, very large suckers. Um, I'm not certain of the specifics there, David, but uh, the suckers would be attached to the parent tree itself. And if it's a grafted variety such as golden elm, the suckers may vary slightly in appearance to the tree itself because the root system might be a different parent stock, so to speak. So if the suckers are dying for some reason, um, then whatever's affecting the suckers is also affecting the tree. It may be elm leaf beetle, and because they tend to fly up and attack the lowest leaves first, it's perhaps those suckers near ground level that are getting decimated first uh, in contrast to the upper crowns of the trees where the beetles tend to uh, not quite reach so high in larger numbers. Mm. The uh, the suckers are uh, up to 20 or 30 metres high. They're very large trees on their, on their own uh, account. Um, but uh, um, the, the original parent trees seem to be suffering as well. Um, but uh, the... The, there's an absolute tangle of dead trees. Um, it, it, it being on uh, government land, no one is actually terribly interested in even looking at it. And uh, I'm just wondering why um, why somebody hasn't actually cottoned onto this as being a bit of a threat to uh, elm trees everywhere, it's like harbouring some pretty gross sort of <laughs> disease. Mm. Well, I'd say contact your council. If oh, I have. Yeah, right. Okay, yeah. David. Yeah, The point that David has raised, I think, is very, very relevant, particularly in the hills where you've got uh, these gullies and there have been uh, uh, trees, elm trees there, and, and the sucker growth is just quite prolific and uh, it's certainly a major source of the elm leaf beetle and uh, uh, what can be done that's... Not for me to say. Mm. Linda from Milo is saying, please don't call your council for arborists. We won't recommend because it's too fraught with issues oh, and goodness. it might depend on the council, um, you see. Uh, Leanne asks on the text line, Michael, when's the most effective time to inject elm tree for elm uh, leaf beetle? My elm tree was infected badly last season, says Leanne. Yes, certainly, Leanne. Uh, you can uh, treat your tree um, any time during the growing season. Uh, as the chemical will remain active for two to three seasons. So the sooner you start, the sooner the chemical is doing its job in the tree. Uh, in an ideal world, we would all try and treat um, right now as the trees are just coming into leaf, but uh, it's difficult for 
the arborist to get around to all trees within a very short time frame. So uh, get in and book in as soon as you can, um, but any time in the season would be uh, uh, just as good. Michael, I can recall quite a number of years ago now when there used to be an association of arborists and maybe it's time that uh, you could come together and and form an association and and at that stage you can have a list of uh, people who are accredited as arborists but I won't go down there and I won't ask you to comment on that because I just want a quick comment from you on the fact that uh, our season, uh, it's been very, very showery and it's also, it's been rather cool, but we're about to get some warmer temperatures come our way. Just a quick comment. Uh, how do you see uh, the insect population that, that we're about to receive and also the fungal diseases uh, that are, are probably out there with potential? Well, nature responds to resource availability. So when the conditions are right, rainfall and temperature, then insects and various funguses do their job and breed. And this is the way nature works. It's the way it's supposed to be. So uh, what follows on from that, the good and the not-so-good insects and fungal diseases are likely to proliferate this season, and we expect elm leaf beetle to proliferate this season. Michael Palamountain, wonderful arborist, a consulting arborist here in Adelaide, and I thank you very much for being part of our program, and I'm sure it's not too long before we say, hey, Michael, can you come and join Talkback Gardening for another issue? Thanks, John. Thanks, Deb. Thanks, Michael. Always lovely to catch up with Michael Palamountain. Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Thank you for your many texts on soil temperature. Yes, bomb soil temperature report is noted and acted on in my garden, says this texter. Um, maybe the reason soil temperatures are not provided is because our weather forecasts are now issued from Melbourne. Adelaide staff now only read the reports provided by Melbourne, says this texter. I can't comment on the veracity of that. Phil from Cainton said, was disappointed when I discovered soil temperatures were no longer being recorded at the Nuriut per viticulture station. I used to reference them. Um, Dave says, uh, regarding soil temperature, it's key to seed germination and as a horticultural propagator, I know how crucial it is. It's key to germination availability of soil nutrients and growth. Chaz in Aldinga says, yes, info on soil temperature is really helpful to me. Tony at Ross Trevor says, soil temperatures from BOM not essential as many people have raised beds and he uses a soil thermometer. So that's one of the few in descent. But Janet uh, on Kaparinga Hill says, yes, please. Soil temperature information, very helpful. We'll come back to more of those in a moment. The text line... Zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one. If you've been relying on the soil temperatures from the bureau, Dan from Hawthorne joins us now. Dan, your bamboo is being attacked by something. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, uh, the uh, we've got bamboo. Oh, Dan, you're going to have to move in closer to your phone. There, I've got you as loud as I can, and we can barely hear you. Uh, yes, um, we've got bamboo in our garden. And uh, we're at Hawthorne, and we've had it for... It's been here for, I think, 20 years or more, so it's established. It's a screen, and it's got... It's getting bitten by bugs of some sort. It's uh, it's dying back, it's, and the, whatever it is that's attacking it is... Uh, it is um, drying back and, and uh, looking really quite terrible. Uh, we're fearful we will lose the whole lot. When you say that it's being attacked with by something... Uh, uh, when I hear the word attack, I visually visualise, I suppose, uh, pieces being taken out of the leaf. Uh, is is something munching or chewing or making holes Nothing. in it, or is it a die back on the leaf or so, something happening to the leaf itself? The latter. The die. It looks like it's dying back. Okay, right. Right. Uh, that's important because if I start giving a little uh, discussion on insects, and it's probably, uh, I think it's fungal. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. There are a number of leaf spots that can affect uh, the bamboo. And as Michael was saying, it, it's one of those seasons where you get the combination of constant showers and the leaves remain uh, moist often for 10 or 12 hours and even longer. And it, when you get the right kind of temperatures for that particular uh, fungal disease or bacterial probably, it could be for uh, on, on your 
bamboo. So the conditions are rife for all kinds of little fungal spots, and I just emphasize keep an eye in your garden and, and watch it. Now, if it's a bacteria or a fungus, it's probably, uh, as soon as you can see that there is damage being done, spraying, spraying thoroughly, and uh, the Mancozeb Plus, I think, is probably at top of my list in terms of uh, uh, chemicals because it's got two uh, actives uh, working for you. Um, one spray of copper, if it is a fungal disease, they are both very broad spectrum. They cover uh, powdery mildew, downy mildew, rust, um, and uh, black spot. Right. So uh, the, if you want to be organic, then I would suggest that you use eco-fungicide. It's relatively new. It's based on potassium salts, very effective, but it is not as effective as the big guns, but it is organic. And uh, I would suggest it's not recommended on the labels, but combining a horticultural oil with the eco-fungicide will give you two factors working together and might give you the control you're looking for. Okay, that uh, uh, John, the the first one that you mentioned, I didn't get the the words right. Oh, oh. Mancozeb, 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 M-A-N-C-O, Mancozeb, Z-E-B, and the plus okay. is the for the sulphur, so it's oh, got it, it's got two elements working. Good. Thank you for that. I have a, some help for somebody who ever wants to deal with elm tree. <laughs> uh, we use we use a group uh, called Arborman, and they're very very good. Thanks, Jen. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> you, we we can't endorse whether that's correct or not, of course. But thanks, Jen, for letting people know that. Kim is in Manham, and just before we go to Kim quickly, there are so many texts on soil temperature. I better just give a couple more of them. Jane from Leebrook says, um, I join in requesting the Bureau publish their information about soil temperatures as a a home gardener. I need this information for veggie planting, also for timing for planting shrubs annuals across the season, both in my garden and in pots. Thank you for that, Jane. Um, And uh, also... Mary at Cuddly Creek says the soil temperature readings are so important to us home gardeners. Monica says, we have a large block. While in winter and summer temperatures are constant across the yard, they vary significantly in all autumn and spring by 5 to 8 degrees. So Monica thinks it would be relevant then. This texter asks, can we go on the BOM website to look this up ourselves? Now, it's not being published, John. That's my understanding. Yes, the information was made available daily. Um, but uh, what is actually happening is that uh, the Bureau are automating a lot of their services and uh, it just means that where somebody actually had to physically take the reading and put it down, uh, it's now automatically happening and then it just automatically gets published. There's nobody in between. But is it being published Uh, so that we can look it up on the... Well, that's what I'm not too sure. Mm. I'm aware that at West Beach, the the reading material, the the machinery that reads the soil temperatures is at West Beach, and it's still there. And I would presume it's still operating, but uh, it's no lo- it's no longer going to be read manually. It's going to be uh, everything else has been automated, and I take on board that the bureau are saying, "Look, we have limited resources. We must put them where they are most mm. valuable, and they value agriculture." And I say, "Here, here to that." But maybe there is a need to understand just how much horticulture is here in the Adelaide Hills and beyond Mm. that also rely on this and is equally as important as the agriculture. And might I also say that in agriculture, they are far better organised and there are, uh, uh, there's, there's a land, uh, I've got the name of it, but uh, there's an organisation there that organises the state into regions. There's seven regions and within each region, there are about seven to ten automatic recording stations. 
and I went onto those to see whether I could use them. But they record soil temperatures at the surface, and I want soil temperatures in where the, the roots are. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, the other area that I think I need to mention is in talking to the Bureau, they sort of politely, and they've been very, very helpful, I must admit. Uh, and they sort of said, John, what, the, the nearest station to you is Roseworthy. Why don't you give people the Roseworthy temperatures? Mm-hmm. Now, what I need to know is, is there a correlation between Roseworthy and Adelaide? Roseworthy temperatures are currently uh, between 12 and 13 degrees. At home, I take my own temperatures, and they're 11 to 12. And my temperatures I don't use, I wouldn't like to use, because I don't have a sunny (laughs) garden, and temperatures are taken in full sun. So there are a number of issues out there. Wow. Kim, sorry to keep you waiting from Manham. Now, what's happening to your almond tree? Good morning, Deborah John. I have some almond trees, I heart your almond trees. I grew from seed rats five, six, seven years ago. There, one has uh, one that I think is gamosus. The old, like the old uh, gum uh, gamosus from the the arm tree, uh, from the apricot trees. But some some is is hard and sticky, like the the old type. Uh, but the the ones I have in question is uh, it, it looks like loose and friable. As if it's been eaten by something, you know, and you think it would be able to blow away. Right, you've got a but number. It, of ca- it doesn't. It's too too heavy to blow away. Yes, well, right, a couple of issues there. First of all, it's a five-year-old almond tree. So is the well, five, six, seven. Uh, all right, right, it's relatively young from my point of view. Uh, yes. Something that's matures twenty or thirty years old, um, and that's important because it, while it's young, uh, it oozes uh, sap out of. Uh, uh, its growing areas uh, is the sap coming out of the branches or is it on the fr- fr- on on the, the the kernels themselves? No, it's where the limbs join into the trunk. Okay, right. Uh, I think you'll find that it's well. I, I suspect it's just growing pains, or else there could be a, a caterpillar, a borer, with it's got into there. And what is happening is the tree is trying to uh, fill up the gap. Sometimes the, the tree grows quickly and the bark splits and it, the tree will automatically fill up that split with uh, its own sap to protect fungal diseases from coming in. And similarly, if there's a caterpillar or borer uh, at work, uh, you, you need to take a look at the ho- where it's coming from. Are there holes there? Is there fresh coming out of the holes? That will say it's, it's a borer or a caterpillar. Um, so if it's growing pains, I wouldn't be concerned. On the other hand, uh, if you were getting dieback, I would be concerned, and that would be probably gamosis. I don't think you've got a gamosis problem. What I'd be suggesting is you spray the tree uh, uh, fairly soon with a copper spray, and in autumn, as the leaves start to fall, spray the tree thoroughly with copper at that stage. And uh, if there are uh, fungal diseases, that should at least uh, arrest them or prevent them from uh, progressing any further. What what particular brand of copper? Just straight copper or copper sulfate? Or? Uh, you'll find that there are a number out there. Liquid copper. Liquid copper is a right. new type of copper. It's, uh, uh, it, it spreads better and it lasts longer, much better than cl- copper hydroxide or other forms of copper. So I... Spray it now. Oh, spray. That's right. Spray the trees now and and in autumn when the leaves are starting to fall. Right. And you don't think it's a grub in the joint? Well, you've got to find that out. I can't see it from here. Oh, Jim. Right, okay. You've got to get down on hands and knees, and you'll yeah, see a hole there, a pencil thickness hole. And if oh, there's a hole, it's covered, it's covered over with gum or the uh, well, the, scra- the scrape gumbos. the gum, scrape the gum back, the the gum back. And you'll see it, it, there is a hole. If there's no hole, it's just growing pains and, and uh, it'll repair itself. Thanks for the call, Kim. Good luck with that. We'll come to Kane and Joylene next. Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Just a few more of your soil texts. Yes to soil temps, says Tim. Um, Bomb, please keep publishing soil temperatures. They would provide a great benchmark to compare with my own measurements, says this texter. Does, Danny says, does the Weather Bureau not want to publish a figure that they can actually get accurate? Uh, Kim from Scott Creek says, I hang out for the soil temperature to plant my tomatoes. We all need soil temperatures. 
Um, and Chris says, I don't think Metro Adelaide needs soil temperatures. Uh, gardeners will do whatever they want anyway. Use nearby ag area soil temps and make a smart estimate. One of the very few that's not in favour of that. Thank you very much for your text. Come to more of them in a moment. But Kane in Happy Valley, you've got 40 lily pillies growing like a hedge. Yeah, correct. Uh, morning, Deb and John. Uh, there's probably more than that, actually, but they're newer ones. But these ones are about seven, eight years old, uh, and the older leaves are sort of eaten around the edges and uh, drier, uh, whereas the new growth is quite shiny but is pimply and blistery. So I'm just wondering what's going on with them. You've got two factors working there. Lily Pilly Beetle <laughs> is the first one. It's a new beetle. It's only been in Adelaide for the last two or three years. And uh, mm. it, it's... Uh, very hard to give you uh, uh, an answer to what to use to control because lily pillies they flower profusely, and if mm. you the the one chemical which is very effective against the lily pilly uh, beetle is imidacloprid, and it is okay. systemic and it will go through the plant and into the flowers and, and into the pollen, and I won't recommend it. I don't think you should use imidacloprid on lily pillies. Um, okay. Your best bet, I think, would probably be neem. Neem. Neem is a spray, okay. from, and uh, it's very, very expensive, um, uh, but mm-hmm. it's an insecticide uh, that is uh, available for organic uh, gardeners, and uh, uh-huh. it, it, it probably... Should well, it should give you control of that particular problem. Now, the second one is the uh, the blistering, and that's a little yeah. psyllid, a tiny little insect. It lands on the leaf, and uh, the leaf uh, uh, it, it it emerges or starts eating the leaf, and and it causes the the puckering or that damage there. And you'll find yeah. that uh, at the base of that little puckering, there is a tiny little sap sucking insect. Uh, what I'd suggest, and it happens usually in spring and in autumn, uh, the best thing you can do is when you see it, and if you've got a hedge, you've got a big job, but is cut off yep. the little uh, the tips. It's only the tips that are affected. Uh, trim off, get the hedge clippers and trim off the, 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 the tips that are affected and drop them on the ground. The little psyllid will stay alive, but there's also a little biological agent out there that works on them. And if you take off all of the blisters, um, the poor little uh, parasitic insect doesn't have anything to eat. Whereas if you drop them on the ground, the psyllids will stay alive for a couple of weeks and uh, you'll find that the the little parasite will go down and and clean them up. But uh, I think just trimming twice a year is probably your best yep. bet there. Again, uh, imidacloprid would, uh, would solve that problem and I'm not going to recommend it. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Kane. Hope you go well with that. Coming back to soil temperatures, Debit Warridale on the text line says a big yes to the bomb restoring soil temperature information on its website for home gardeners and horticulturalists, a very useful tool. Um, Angela from Ridgehaven says, I value finding out soil temperatures. I don't really want to have to purchase a thermometer. Um, Bill from Belair says, I definitely support the call to get the bomb to continue to provide soil temperatures. I always wait for John to advise to make my planting decisions. Um, And Ken says, I rely on the soil temperature that you give us, John, as we come out of winter and during autumn for planting. I live in Burnside. I'm also concerned re-summer heat wave soil temperatures as well. Joylene is in Cadell. Now, Joylene, you've got a, a very old staghorn. Yes, yes. Um, well, I'm not sure of its age. I've had it for 20 years, and I think the gentleman that gave it to me had had it for 10 or 20 years before that. And it's quite big, as you can imagine. I've had to change the back of it a couple of times, um, you know, the wooden piece behind. But I woke up this morning, gone out and checked my plants, and the fronds at the front um, look like they've got like a sooty mould at the bottom of them and like a brown scale that's very sticky. And I'm just not sure what to spray it with or wipe it with or what to do. Well done there, Joylene. You've identified the issue, uh, sooty mould, and also the reason you've got sooty mould, which is the scale. Scale are sap-sucking insects. They're Mm. sucking away, and the excess juice uh, uh, comes out of the rear end of... uh, or comes out of the the scales, uh, and uh, that sets up... uh, uh, a fungus called sooty mould, and if you uh, treat the scale, 
the sooty mould will get washed away and disappear. And I would wow. suggest that a horticultural oil, and there are two wow. that are regularly available. One is uh, pest oil, and yes. uh, the other one is not pest oil. <laughs> No, that's all right. I've got pest oil. Eco oil. Why couldn't I think of eco oil? (laughs) Oh, goodness (laughs) gracious. There's so much happening this morning that um, I I need another cup of coffee, I think. Fair enough. So if I just spray it with the pest oil, do I have to wipe it actually off? Um, No, if you can spray it, uh, set your uh, uh, sprayer on fairly fine so you get a fine mist and put on enough so that uh, the leaves are thoroughly covered with the oil and uh, if you do that uh, you may be prepared to uh, in two weeks or three weeks time put on a second application if you've got a very large number of scale and get that scale where the uh, fronds are emerging from the shield make sure you you drench that little area there the oil won't hurt the plant but it certainly will clean up the scale clean up the scale and the rain will wash off the sooty mould. Thank you very much, John. Appreciate Th- it. Thanks for the call, Joylene. If you'd like uh, to speak to John, a couple of minutes left. The phone number is one three hundred triple two eight nine one. Kelvin is in Moon to Bay with a dwarf mulberry tree. Hi, Kelvin. Hi. Good morning. Um, I've got a dwarf mulberry tree. It's about three year old. Uh, it's about a, well, been pruned back to a bit over a metre high in a half wine barrel. Um, it's looking very green and healthy, um, but it's losing all its fruit. It's, at, at the fruit stage, is all just dropping off. At what stage are the fruit dropping? They're probably just starting to colour. They're, they're just starting to colour to sort of a red, reddish colour. Only happening and this year, or this is a regular occurrence? It didn't tend to happen last year, but last year the leaves were very yellow, um, and it didn't look all that healthy. So we've put... A power feed liquid on it about four weeks ago and I've also put some trace elements into it about three weeks ago and some rapid razor and complete D and then topped the soil up over the last couple of weeks as well. So I don't know whether any of that is too much I or... Think, yeah, too much. Um, you'll find that uh, mulberries drop their fruit anyway uh, on a regular basis, which is, can be uh, disappointing and frustrating. Um, and when you get uh, the fact that they're starting to drop off just before they ripen, it either means that you've got too many fruits on there and it's trying to sort of uh, uh, bring what it can to maturity uh, by dropping some. Uh, and uh, if that's not the issue, then it, it it's some kind of a setback. It's had uh, a stress, and often uh, you'll find that uh, as they're sort of coming through spring, we get a dry period, and they go from wet to dry, and that I don't think is your problem this year. <laughs> um, it could be that it's too wet, and there's too much moisture there, uh, or it could I actually, and this is what I think you probably is the problem, is you've got too much fertiliser there, and there's too much nutrition, and the roots can't cope with it, and uh, the salts probably in the, the materials that you're using are aggravating it, so you're putting on too much fertiliser too quickly, uh, associated with cold, wet soil, and so you're seeing the results falling fruit. Right, okay. So um, nothing I can obviously do this year with it. Um, what What should I do on a like a yearly basis as far as fertilizers is concerned. Uh, get into the habit of fertilizing your mulberry trees uh, and all your fruit trees in autumn. People p- wait until spring to fertilize and often it's too late. Put your fertilizer on early in autumn. That's the time when the tree is building its energy for next year's bud burst and fruit. And put your fertilizer on then, and then if you wanted to give it a top up, uh, uh, then probably putting on uh, a smaller quantity of fertilizer in springtime or late winter. Put that on in late winter while it's dormant, and you're not going to have the problems you're getting now. No worries. Okay, thanks very much for that, John. Thanks. Thanks for the call, Kelvin. We appreciate no. that. No, uh, thank, if, you. thank you. If you'd like to ask John a question, you've got a few minutes left to do it on one three hundred triple two eight nine one. And also, if you would like one of the two last ABC Gardening Australia magazines, then I'm giving them away to you. If you haven't won anything from our station in the last month, call in now on one three hundred triple two eight nine one. 
Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. And the phones are lighting up. Stan from Spalding and Steve from Tarawi are our magazine winners today. Good work. And thank you very much to the many people who've taken the opportunity to text in on your issue, John, of soil temperatures and the Bureau of Meteorology. Um, Rick at Waruka, though, is saying, since your program covers such a large area, why don't you encourage people to buy their own soil temperature thermometer rather than rely on the bomb? Rick, I've been trying to get people to buy soil thermometers uh, for a long time. And uh, you can buy just a simple one. Don't buy the little glass ones because if we stick them in the ground, they'll break. But you can get metal-tipped ones or you can now get uh, uh, PVC, uh, very strong PVC uh, uh, ones that protect the, uh, uh, the material that records inside it. So you can buy them probably for about 4 or $5 and they are very, very useful for your own information and everybody's garden is a little bit different but I think it's important that we give people an idea of trends of the fact that you know it's cold and it's staying cold or uh, temperatures are soil temperatures are starting to rise yeah Yeah, that's right and uh, at different times of the year it has different uh, meanings but come back to what Matt Coulter was saying the curator at the Adelaide Botanic Gardens that temperatures uh, plants all plants have a minimum temperature where they won't grow they have a maximum temperature where uh, they will also suffer stress and there is an optimum temperature and it's getting that optimum temperature and being aware of that and, and your plants that is, is, is what is important. Jan says, I listen every year for soil temperatures for planting tomatoes, which we might come back to in a minute, John. A bomb should reintroduce advising the public of soil temperature. Isn't that their job? Uh, this person, sorry, the text is so long your name's dropped off, but says maybe the key word in the bombs letter is customers. Rightly or wrongly, if it's not possible to quantify the economic benefit of publishing soil uh, temperatures, the bomb may not be able to justify that activity. Is there any data showing economic benefit of home gardens activity? I also wonder whether environmental benefits, e.g. less food miles, cooling of suburbs, etc., would be taken into account. If not, maybe it's time for that to change. Personally, I rely on my own measurement of the soil temperatures. Deb, let's hear it for the bomb. I'm aware that uh, not more than uh, two years ago, the government, the Commonwealth government, cut the budget for the Bureau of Meteorology considerably. And as a result, many very effective officers within the the bomb were actually uh, given packages. And so they are under tremendous pressure themselves to make sure that every dollar they've got is used to maximum advantage. So that might be very uh, important, what was just raised on the text line then. That's right, yes. And so agriculture is obviously important. But I would say, suggest that agriculture is probably more uh, organised and there is more data available to gardener, to, to, to farmers than there are home gardeners and the garden centres and the garden, uh, the people that grow the plants and, and the, the landscapers and all of the other people that require that information. And uh, there's no common uh, collection of that in Adelaide. And I think uh, having... Uh, that information available for Adelaide is important. And uh, if not, if, if we're going to use Roseworthy, is there a correlation? Yeah. That, yep. So uh, we love the bomb, of course. They give us great weather advice here uh, for everybody in the ABC family. And Jane and Liz also saying that soil temperatures are very important to them. Let's go to Kingswood. Michelle, you got a 100-year-old fig tree. Yes, that's right. Good morning. Uh, we recently moved into our house about four months ago and there is a 100, we are told, year old fig tree that's in kind of a raised garden bed in our backyard. We've never had a fig tree before and we certainly want to look after it given its age, but um, we're not really sure what we should be doing to it, if anything, and there also seems to be a couple of little bugs on one side of it so we just want to make sure we're looking after it have you pruned or has it been pruned in the last uh, or during winter uh we didn't prune it um i'm not sure we kind of moved in halfway through winter so um it doesn't look like it's been pruned in quite a long time 
I'd suggest that you need to read up a lot about figs. They're fascinating and they are very durable and they're almost indestructible. If you do nothing, you'll probably find it'll get bigger and bigger and you'll have fruits in autumn. If you're smart and read up how to prune them, you can have figs twice a year and you'll find that uh, figs, they're deciduous, they're coming into new leaf and they're also coming into new fruits. That's their first crop. <laughs> but uh, most people, if they prune, they prune too hard and they prune off the, uh, the, the the first crop and they only get a second crop. So there's a lot to be learnt and I can't do explain that in, in, in the time available. And but especially with a 100-year-old tree, you'd want to be very look, respectful of it, yes, wouldn't you? The, the important thing is uh, make sure that you don't uh, let it uh, stress during summer. One or two deep soakings during January, February and maybe March would be worthwhile. Fertilising in autumn would be well worthwhile. Learning how to prune the tree correctly and you can have it at whatever size you want you can have a big tree or a small tree the tree will respond it'll still fruit but do your homework okay good thank you bit of homework for you michelle from kingswood thank you very much and of course the perennial problem of possums brian from hawthorne dean you've got a potential solution i have uh, thank you um, yes, I actually feed everything in my garden with wheat and nothing, uh, the possums, the birds, nothing attacks the plants. Um, it's very cheap and I check with Professor Chris Daniels who says it's a good thing to feed them. But you do need to control your rats and what I would suggest is there's a, a, a rat machine which electrocutes rats so wow. that solves that problem. Wow, okay, that was a, <laughs> a good one to finish up. Yes, wow, okay, that. Brian, that's incredible. Thank you very much. Yes. I was wondering if it was going to affect the, the wildlife. Yes, well, oh, and certainly coming back to the wheat, the fact if you can sort of feed them and they, they have a, a preference for wheat over uh, your figs or well, your uh, uh, wisteria blossom or whatever it might be is, is I suppose, a, a good concept. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thanks very much, Brian. And now, tomatoes. We're getting loads of questions on the text line. When should I plant John Lamb? Well, that's difficult without the soil temperatures. I can only give you the roseworthy temperatures, which are... Uh, 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 thir- uh, yeah, 13 to 14 and that's 2 degrees below the, the 16 degrees which are needed and it looks like if you look at the temperatures we're going to have another week of mild conditions so I would suggest that uh, uh, by next the long weekend soil temperatures will still be below 16 degrees and I also point out that the uh, surveys that we carry out, the tomato surveys we carry out, indicate the best tomato crops are produced by people who put their tomatoes in in mid or late October. So wait until the mid or late October if you're not too sure what to do and you'll have the best opportunities because the soil at that stage will be warm enough. And if you don't uh, have... Uh, uh, well, yeah, well, I think I'll leave that and we'll talk more about tomatoes and planting tomatoes in next week's program. And perhaps at the stage, Deb, I might say, good gardening. <laughs> Thank you very much, John Lamb. We've uh, covered a lot of ground this morning, no doubt about it.